Hey, this is Johnny from Art of Dying, and you're listening to Iron City Rock. Hey, this is Phil Susan here, and you're listening to Iron City Rock. Welcome to episode 117 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John. The Iron City Rocks podcast is a podcast devoted to promoting Pittsburgh's rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues music scene. Episode 117, we have two very special guests. We have Johnny Hetherington of the band Art of Dying, who will be coming to the 42nd Street Rock Club in Greensburg on the 13th of August. And also we have Phil Suzanne. You may not remember the name Phil Suzanne, but uh, you probably remember one of his uh, biggest contributions to the world of rock, the song Shot in the Dark from Ozzy Osbourne. So, without further ado, we're going to give you a little taste of Art of Dying. We're going to play a little snippet of Die Trying, and I will be there, and then we're going to talk to Johnny. Somebody's leaving Somebody gives a damn Somebody's dreaming Cause somebody knows Doing wonderful. Great. I uh, just wanted to talk to you guys who are coming in uh, to Greensburg, PA. I think it's the second date on your tour uh, coming up, uh, what is it, the 13th of August. So I wanted to kind of give the people of Pittsburgh a chance to get to know the band a little bit, if that's cool with you. Totally, man. I think uh, I'm just looking at our schedule. we got, yeah, Bethlehem, Greensburg, and uh, and then way later we got for Pittsburgh. So Yeah, you're coming in, and Pittsburgh and Greensburg are kind of, uh, opposite sides of uh, Pittsburgh, so you're kind of blanketing the whole market area. You want to give us a little background on how the band got started? Sure, man. Um, we're from uh, we're from Canada, and uh, uh, Greg and I actually met here in Vancouver. Um, funny story: I was playing just my acoustic guitar on the street, <laughs> okay. learning how to play and sing at the same time. And uh, um, Greg and a couple friends were walking by, heard my voice, and asked me to come and jam with them. And we that was it for us. We've been making music together ever since, and uh, we met Jeff Brown, who uh, is our drummer. And a couple of years later, and he connected us. He's originally from Ontario, and connected us to Kale and Tavis, who were out in Ontario playing with a band called Thornley. Okay. And five of us, um, we happened to be out at uh, on a uh, festival called Canadian Music Week, and we connected 
beers um, one night and just you know got along famously like like we had always been a circle of best friends and uh, so you know we hadn't even played any music together yet we were just really connected as people and um, our first time actually playing music together was we you know we agreed after that night to uh, to play together we started a tour a couple weeks later and uh, it was in the middle of Canada so we three of us drove and two guys flew in and we just had an extra long sound check and uh, that was the first time we struck a note together and that really um, you know we we all as soon as we walked on that stage and started singing and playing and harmonizing together we just we all knew there was something very special going on, and, and that was it. We yeah. embraced it. That's certainly a heck of a way to get a get the band started with the first go or first live. Um, you guys, you guys got formed kind of in the earlier part of the two thousands, correct? Yeah, I mean, Greg and I. Um, I think the actual band name, Art of Dying. You know, we we decided on that in about two thousand and five, or okay. somewhere around there. Um, we've been playing as, you know, just five people since 2008. Um, so just, you know, it took a, a couple of years of, uh, fighting in the trenches out here in Vancouver to figure out exactly what we wanted to do. Yeah, now you have, um, you had done, kind of went the indie route for your first album, correct? You had a self-titled album that I believe was available through CD Baby here in the States? Yeah. Was yeah, that? That's kind of, you know, a big part of our story actually is, we made that record on our own, funded it on our own, and kind of started our own label, um, mm-hmm. which is called Thorny Bleeder Records here in Vancouver, um, which has gone on to uh, do a lot of great work for a lot of other bands. And uh, we still own and operate Thorny Bleeder, and that record, um, that indie record, is the one that kind of really got people familiar with us and allowed us, you know, open some doors for us in, in uh International markets. We had, we went over and toured in England with Caesar and played a few festivals over there with Metallica and a bunch of really great bands. And, and that's what technically I guess got Dan and David's attention from Disturbed. Mm-hmm. They got that CD. They got a hold of the album and really liked. I think they really liked the combination of the music that was there, the potential that it had, and and also the work ethic of what was going on and how we were doing this all on our own and. They were really impressed by all that. Yeah, and I noticed if elements of your band, I mean, some of the songs do have a bit of what I would consider a disturbed flavor to it, but a lot of it, you've got some, I would say, dare even say some singer-songwriter type, you know, influences coming in there. Was there anybody in particular you pattern yourself after singing-wise? Because I don't see David, you know, is, you know, your vocal influence, but is there somebody out there that you could put a finger on or a collection of people? Definitely. Um a lot of what happened in the 90s was a big, big influence on me. kind of changed the way I, I thought about music and thought about expressing, you know, a feeling. Um, Eddie Vedder was a huge influence. Mm-hmm. Um, I just had the thrill of going to see Chris Cornell in Soundgarden here in Vancouver a few nights ago, and that was just a, a, a amazing to see them, you know, back yeah. in the day and see them now. And, uh, you know, bands like that and singers like that, um, just that whole era was really, really special and important to me, and uh, that continued on for me. You know, Maynard's voice has yeah. has really touched something in me, and, and definitely with all of his projects, not just Tool. And uh, um, when when you speak of like singer songwriters, you know, um, a guy named Damien Rice, okay, uh, 
is I'm a big fan of. Um, I really like his, you know, what he does. And one of the best shows I ever saw in my life, for sure, was was his performance here in Vancouver. And now, when you um, when you got you know the call from from I believe it was Dan uh, from Disturbed who reached out to the band. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. How did how did this kind of all come to be? Because that had to be sort of you know mind blowing at the time. I mean, Disturbed was was if I'm not mistaken on my time frame is right. It was huge at the time. Um, yeah. <laughs> to get this call, you know, that's got to be kind of mind blowing. It, it was pretty cool, man. Um, we worked very very hard behind the scenes to always. You know, uh, I wouldn't leave my house without a CD in my pocket, mm-hmm. and uh, I wouldn't leave any uh, any door you know closed. I would always try and get my foot in any one that I could. Sure. <laughs> Over the years, I met you know a ton of awesome people, and one of those people was a, a radio promoter in Boston, and we just kept in touch. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'd always send him new songs, new material. When that indie record came out, he, I sent him a copy, and he was an acquaintance with Dan Donegan, and and. That's how it got connected. He asked me to send Dan a CD, um, and then Dan, he said he should be getting a call from Dan sometime soon. And I think a few weeks went by, I didn't hear anything, and then I, I did get a call, and, and Dan and I really connected. You know, we talked for about an hour uh, about the music business and the state of the music business and, um, you know, the music we were making, and he was really... Uh, had, you know, really nice things to say about what we were doing, and he was impressed with our work ethic, and, um, yeah, I was kind of pinching myself during that phone sure. call, you know. But at the same time, I never really expected, you know, he said the call ended on a note of, uh, of, you know, if I can ever do anything to help you guys, I'd love to, so mm-hmm. keep in touch. Sure. And I was like, yeah, okay. You know, hang up the phone, and I'm thinking... We'll probably never hear from this guy again. Yeah, you just take that moment in time and be, you know, be glad you had that call and move on. But yeah, yeah, and and that happens a lot. You can't, you know, you can't uh, become too too hopeful all the time that someone sure. can actually stick their neck out for you. And um, lucky for us, that wasn't the last time we heard from Dan. It was, um, I think, about eight months later. The phone rang again. It was Dan, and uh, he said, "I've got an opportunity. We'd like to." bring you guys as an opening band on our tour. And we were just jumping for joy. We're like, That's Now it's serious, biggest, yeah. Biggest tour we've ever been on. So sure. we said yes right away. And that whole tour, um, you know, we just went, played our hearts out, and had the best time of our lives. Un- completely unbeknownst to us, they had an imprint, a record label, and Mm-hmm. And the whole tour for them was watching us side stage, and it was the showcase. But yeah, we, you, you know, we, we didn't know. <laughs> you know, you, <laughs> Which you, is probably the best. <laughs> absolutely, I was going to say if you, if you knew that you were sitting there being evaluated for a record deal by the members of Disturbed every night, yeah, I, I can see how that could be paralyzing. You know. It's pretty funny because uh, to, the, to the extent that we were inviting other labels out to the shows themselves, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm you know telling Dan. Hey man, we've got this guy coming out from such and such label tonight. He's gonna, we're gonna showcase backstage with our acoustic guitars and stuff. And I had no idea that Dan was looking at us, so it was just kind of, he must have been just like biting his tongue a little bit saying, yeah. oh. Sorry, I hope I don't make <laughs> work ethic, but come on. <laughs> yeah. Hope they don't get an offer. Yeah. I don't want to get into a bidding war. <laughs> now, um, you guys went, uh, and made, uh, Quite a bit of noise uh, by getting in with the WWE as the sound 
you know, the theme song for the, was it the 2009 Survivor Series? I apologize, I'm not a huge wrestling fan anymore. But, um. Yeah, it, it was, uh, I believe it was. It how was did, the, how did that come to be? Cause that had to be a huge opportunity. It, it is, man. It was, um, somehow the, uh, the WWE people got a hold of the song and, um, they loved it. They just, they just wanted it. And they used it for the Survivor Series. They also used it for their program called NXT. Okay. Which was kind of a, a battle of wrestlers to, um, not really a reality show, but it's like a, you know, a last man standing kind of deal. Okay. And, um, we were just thrilled. Like, you know, we all grew up watching wrestling and, um, it was just a huge opportunity. And, and we definitely noticed, you know, as the song kept playing within their shows that a lot of our Facebook and Twitter followers and stuff were coming from that world. So it was just, it, it was a huge opportunity and still is. It's just great to be, great to have those guys on our team. Now that's the same song, correct me if I'm wrong, that's on the Transformer soundtrack now as well, correct? That's right, yeah, same kind of story, man. Michael Bay um, always puts a lot of thought into uh, into his soundtracks, and Linkin Park's been kind of the, the lead-off for all the Transformer mm-hmm. films and soundtracks, and um, he put, you know, he really liked Get Through This, and I think he wanted another, uh, a newer band that had a hard-hitting song that um, had an anthem for you know, worthy of this movie, and mm-hmm. again, we were just like, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <What about that? laughs> yeah, and for those not familiar, the, the soundtrack has got a lot of great bands. Uh, one of my favorites, The Black Veil Brides, uh, as well. So you're in some really good company there. Totally. You know, I, I really admire. Um, I, I admire the fact that people really care about soundtracks still mm-hmm. and, and put thought into it and combine new artists like us and Black Veil Brides into. Mm-hmm. You know, an environment where Lincoln Park is, and it's just awesome to be able to have those, you know, uh, borders being crossed between. Sure. It's great. Right now, Vices and uh, Virtues that came out earlier this year, correct? Yeah, it's actually pretty new, man. March twenty-two was the okay. release date, and so it's, um, it you know, feels like it's been a few months that has. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you're you're playing the songs night in, night out. So I'm sure they're they're. Uh, but you guys also, you know, had quite a bit of success with Die Trying, uh, another one of the singles. Uh, one of the things I was curious about, there's um, two songs on the album that I think I'm hearing a female voice, and if I'm wrong, correct me, but I will be there and best I can. Is there a female voice in there I'm hearing? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a lot of pleasure in telling Tavis that you said that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So he's... He's got... Okay. It, that was one of those, you know, to go back to that story where we met on stage and started playing together. We just knew um, we're, I think, one of the only bands out there in modern rock right now, definitely right now, that's doing three-part harmonies. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of been our, it's it's really been something we focused on in the studio and just came very naturally to us on stage. And uh, you know, we're doing, we do it live, and we and we're really proud of how it sounds on the recordings, but. Our voices um, seem to really, really work together. So, Tavis sure. is usually singing just above me, and Kale is usually singing just below me, and no. I'm somewhere in the center. And uh, yeah, the mix is the mix of the three is just awesome. Is Tavis's voice is that his natural singing voice, or is he using a falsetto? That's his natural voice. He's got just the craziest range, um, which is. It, it's a lot of fun when we're warm up and we're yeah. on the bus and stuff because we just 
challenge each other with like high notes and uh he you know he really can sing so well we uh we walked into uh we had a few days off in las vegas and we walked into one of the casinos and we're playing poker and he signed up for uh karaoke to sing uh uh aerosmith uh dream on mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was just like you know such a such a quirky environment to be in in a vegas casino and he walks up there and just destroys the song like in a good way. Just sings so so well. And and when it gets to that high, oh, that real high part at the very very end. Yeah, I could see his dream on part. And yeah, nobody can usually sing that, or you know, that's where it falls apart. And for Tabitha, for everyone, just he got like a standing ovation. <laughs> and just went back to the poker table and just picked up where he left off. <laughs> that's good. I mean, you see, there's you know a lot of bands out there now that you know, unfortunately, the the singer can sing, but you know as you know, unfortunately, guitarists and drummers and bass players don't have, you know, maybe the training or the, the skills, and sometimes that's where bands suffer live. I mean, if he's able to do that on record, you know, that that's a great feather in your cap live. Oh, it's huge, and that's the thing, man, is um, doing it in the studio is so much fun because mm-hmm. it's kind of like a playground for us, and, and we, we have a lot of fun in the studio. Like, I know a lot of bands probably go in there feeling a lot of pressure and feeling you know, very business-like, and mm-hmm. we usually roll in with, like, 96 beers and three bottles <laughs> of champagne and, <laughs> and just have fun with it, and you can hear it on the record, I'm sure, like, the, the vocal takes, we're just in there together just having a blast, and, uh, mm-hmm. and then recreating it live is just even more special because nobody, nobody does it, like you said, nobody, mm-hmm. maybe can't do it or maybe just choose not to or whatever. Yeah. Well, excellent. Well, we look forward to seeing you coming again to the 42nd Street uh, in Greensburg on the 13th of August, and then you'll be back as part of the Uproar Festival uh, out in Burgettstown on the 16th of September. Johnny, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me, John. And, um, you know, Iron City Rocks, it's, it's kind of new to me. I just liked you on Facebook. So, uh, hey, great. Um, hopefully, yeah, hopefully everyone that uh, you guys deal with in Pennsylvania and online and stuff will uh, exchange a few notes back and forth. We're, cool. we're on our Facebook and Twitter and stuff every day, and it's it's the band answering questions or whatever, so just Sweet. keep in touch that way for sure. The bluegrass jazz fusion that is Bela Fleck and the Flecktones, live with the original lineup. Watch how we radiate. Same night, the indelible melodies and poetic lyrics of Bruce Hornsby and the Noisemakers, both playing new music from their new albums. September 1st, Trib Total Media Amphitheater. Tickets are on sale now at all Ticketmaster locations, Ticketmaster.com, or by phone. Bela Fleck and the Flecktones and Bruce Hornsby and the Noisemakers. Better days, yeah It's so sad that near It's hard to find a divinity When you're the king of men If I can get through this I can get through anything If I can make it through this I can get through anything Alright, that was Get Through This from Art of Dying Special thanks to Johnny for coming on the show. And again, they will be in town this Saturday, which is the 13th of August, to play the 42nd Street Rock Club in uh, Greensburg. That's um, just east of Pittsburgh on Route 30 near uh, Big Lots. Uh, There's a pretty large strip mall just to the side of it, uh, right off the side of the highway. So very easy to find. If you're not able to catch them, then they will be here on the Uproar Festival 
which is coming to the first Niagara Pavilion on September 16th. So two chances to see Art of Dying in the very near future, and uh, I suggest that you check them out. Next up on the show, we're going to be having former Ozzy Osbourne bassist and also now a member of uh, the Grammys, Phil Suzanne. Uh, you may not recognize the name, but he wrote one of Ozzy's biggest hits. Also, I believe Ozzy's first charting uh, single, which is called Shot in the Dark from the Ultimate Sin album, played on that album, played on that tour, uh, and then left the band. Has also worked with Vince Neil and a few others in the uh, rock world. So Aaron had a chance to talk to Phil recently, so we're going to play that interview in just a moment. The power, the prowess, and proficiency of Dream Theater in a dramatic tour of events. October 4th, Trib Total Media Amphitheater. The new album, A Dramatic Turn of Events, available September 13th. Special guest, Trivium. Your research seat tickets are on sale now at all Ticketmaster locations, Ticketmaster.com, or 1-800-745-3000. More at DreamTheater.net. Net. The Sham Rock and Roll Tour comes to the Trib Total Media Amphitheater September 12th, featuring the Dropkick Murphys. With special guests Street Dog, Chuck Reagan, The Mahoney's, The Parkington Sisters, and more. The Sham Rock and Roll Tour featuring the Dropkick Murphys. Purchase your tickets now at any Ticketmaster outlet, Ticketmaster.com, or by phone. September 12th, The Sham Rock and Roll Tour featuring the Dropkick Murphys at the Trib Total Media Amphitheater. With special guests Street Dog, Chuck Reagan, The Mahoney's, The Parkington Sisters, and more. Produced by Drusky Entertainment and Elko Concerts. Hi, this is Phil Toussaint. You know me from Ozzy. I had the hit Shot in the Dark. And this is my version of that song I wrote for him, coming right up here on Iron City Rocks.
ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show tonight. We have Phil Susan, uh, bass player extraordinaire, and also, um, I believe, is co-president of the Grammys there, Phil, is that correct? I'm, uh, yeah, vice president of the Grammys here in Los Angeles. All right, well, welcome, welcome. How are you doing today, Phil? I'm doing great, thanks. Trying to, trying to keep cool. It's just getting really, really hot out here on the West Coast, and uh, I know the rest of the country's been hot, so we're just getting it now. And, oh, wow, uh, yeah, I can imagine. It, hot, humid, muggy, all those things that make you feel like, uh, you know, just getting up and running around in circles. So Now, um, you are originally from London, England, so um, right. how, long, how long have you been living in, um, in the States here in L.A.? Uh, probably since about 86, on and off. Uh, oh, okay. You know, came out here. Um, I just started spending all my spare time from about that period onwards um, out here in Los Angeles, and then one day I just, uh, you know, never went back. <laughs> it was as simple as that. It wasn't like a conscious move, you know, in one go. So uh, I arrived with a couple of suitcases, and and uh, the last time I moved house, uh, we had this, you know, huge moving truck, and it was taking all this equipment and furniture and clothes, and you know how that goes. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at this shit going, how the fuck did this turn, come out of two suitcases? You know, it's an awful lot of shit. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. Uh, it's kind of funny, but, yeah. Wow. So, how did you get started playing the bass guitar, Phil? Uh, let's see. I uh, started actually playing guitar at the beginning, and... Um, when I was very young, it wasn't until I was in, uh, in uh, I guess what you call high school over here, uh, when I started to want to play with bands, and it seemed that everybody was looking for a bass player, and uh, eventually I got fed up with telling people I played guitar, and I said, you know what, maybe I'll play some bass, I kind of like the bass anyway, so I picked it up, and uh, uh, after a quick crash course, I just, you know, jumped into starting, starting to play bass, and I must have been, I don't know, maybe 12 years old. Something oh, like wow, that. okay. Yeah. That's pretty early on. Well, now, did you have a lot of... It was, about, it was about eight years ago from now, so... Because, <laughs> as you know, I'm about, I'm nearly 20, so... <laughs> <laughs> I, I meant early, early on in, in just, you know, your childhood development, as far as, you know, it's, it's a good age to learn that. Um, but, now, did you have, like, a lot of formal music education? Um... In some respects, I did. You know, I studied music when I was younger. I studied classical music. I played the violin for for a long, long time. And um, so there was a lot of classical music studies. There was music theory, composition, uh, you know, harmony, all those things that you do. Um, but as far as contemporary music studies, I really didn't. Um, it just seemed that contemporary music, uh, you just had to do the exact antithesis of everything they told you in classical music, and you seem to be okay for it. So, you know, they've got class, they've got rules in classical music. You're not supposed to do this, and you're not supposed to do that. And um, they're the very same things that we, you know, we pride ourselves on in, 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 in a lot of music. But I think that the key point was that once you understand music, whether you understand the rules or you don't understand them, that's really the key to learning the instrument or, you know, the, the, the whole you know, subject of music. Yeah, you got to learn the rules so you can break them, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And recognizing those rules, I mean, very, you know, the, the whole idea of self-expression is to break the rules. You know, it's um, classical music is taught on some rules that were derived from, uh, basically, from one composer, from Bach. And, yeah. 
you know, um, I don't know if Bach had been alive today, he probably would have done some very different things. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Now, I'm curious. So, you know, when you studied, like, classical music composition, harmony, those sort of things, was that part of your normal school studies, or did you pursue that as a vocation? Well, uh, it, we had a really great schooling system in England at that time, and uh, it was very intensive. Uh, by the time you were 16 years old, you had probably taken between 8 and 10 subjects and done wow. to a very great uh, degree of detail. Um, and then from that point onwards, you went into, you know, what we called A-levels, um, which would be halfway to a degree over here. So by the time you're 19, you came out, you know, with uh, between two to four A-levels as well. So um, one of the things, you know, we were we were able to take was music. Um, when you took music studies, uh, you then had the option to play an instrument, and if you played an instrument and you were any good at it, uh, you would get a you you had an opportunity to um, to be eligible for a scholarship, and that would allow you to have all your tuition paid for, and uh, also get into some more intense uh, uh, learning. So, um, you know, I might as well have been at a music school. I mean, it was really a terrific program, and uh, it's a real shame that a lot of schools don't have that here anymore. And I don't even know well, if they have them in England anymore the same way, you know. Well, yeah, I was just saying the same thing. So, I mean, you know, I was I was coming up about ten years after you were, and um, like our school. So you're you're nearly like, ten I, years old now, then, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so almost there, right? But um, so you know, my school system here is pretty good. I mean, my band director, I I've you know I I've you know if I run into him, I thank him continuously about the great education he gave me. But it's nowhere near what I think it could be. And, I mean, I'm jealous, you know, knowing what you learned just in the high school program. I didn't get a lot of that until I went to college. And he was even struggling to get some of that stuff in college nowadays. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a sub subject that everybody's talking about. And it's, you know, without getting into, you know, uh, politics or anything like that, I just think that uh, sometimes the money that goes into education programs doesn't really go into the program itself. It seems to yeah. get sort of filtered off and go into related issues, but it's a shame because one of the things we like to do on the Grammys is we have, you know, we have Grammy U, for example, which is for 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 students and it's for kids to uh, opportunity to participate in the Grammy um, organization and also to become like um, uh, to become privy to um, you know some special events that we do. We do some cool, you know, workshops, and we do some great studio visits, and we do some uh, um, Grammy Week, which uh, people get to write songs and record songs and we, with some really big established people. Um, I wish there was more of that stuff going on. Uh, we started a program, well, we were going to start a program called Sponsoring a School, where Grammy um, uh, board members will sponsor a school and bring people over to that school once a month or something, but it's really hard to organize. I still think it's a great That's idea. That's fantastic. Mm. Oh, my goodness, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, you know, actually, the guy who started it was uh, Tom Sturgis, who was the last president of the Grammys over here. And uh, he was over at uh, Universal. Uh, he's an executive over there. And, and he actually did. He's been sponsoring a particular school for about 13 or 14 years. And, you know, one day he went in there and said, you know, who who do you want to meet? And they said, well, we'd want to meet, uh, I forget who it was, some some real big name. And he said, you know, I think I can make that happen. And he went back there a month later with whoever it was, I don't know, Christine Aguilar or someone like that, to sit down wow. and talk to kids and say, look, you know, if you put your head to it, um, you can do anything you want. 
and that was more that that left him with more of an impression than uh, just about anything. Oh yeah, that's that's amazing. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, let's let's talk about. Oh, no, sorry about that. No, no, no problem, no problem. I was just <laughs> just closing that off. I was saying, you know, I'd like to. Hopefully, we can sort of expand that program. Oh yeah, it's a phenomenal program. Mm. So let's talk about your long career here. You've had a pretty darn long career in in music and rock music. How did you get that career kicked off? How that how that start for you? Um, I think it started with the usual playing with bands around town, playing with uh, you know, um, finding like minded people who who kind of wanted to do a similar kind of thing. Um, and we started our own sort of you know young bands. I mean, we'd play anywhere they would let us play, anywhere we could make a noise, we'd play. And um, uh, if it was anything like street parties or just a jam at somebody's house or somebody's parents were away for the weekend and we could set all the gear up in their front room. And, you know, I mean, it, just the same things that people do here. Uh, eventually, some of those people either went on to do different things uh, and I carried on playing and those bands just got a little bit bigger and a little bit better known. Um, and uh, until... You know, one day I, I joined a band that actually had the um, uh, a world-class kind of uh, opportunity in front of it in terms of a deal, um, and I, I, I became a member of that band. Um, and then it sort of just kind of sidestepped. And I, I always tell people that. I think it just, you know, it's like one thing leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next. And and just depending on the dis- the choices that you make along the way, um, I think that, that, that they're like se- stepping stones. Um, there are some people, I think, who are more solo artists uh, who who come out and they pretty much know what they want to do. And for them, they get a, st- a spark of a career and then they try to sort of cultivate that and try to cultivate their career and keep it, keep it going. And it's a similar thing. I mean, um, ultimately, I wish I'd have been involved in something like that, but that wasn't the way things turned out. And so, you know, you just eventually you make things uh, work the way that you uh, want to make them work. So um, each project has led on from another project, and then you know I find myself also unable to sort of turn away from something that I really want to do. So I find myself doing more than one thing at, at once. Um, but I, I'm a really busy guy. I don't have too much time to 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 uh, to spend doing um, you know unrelated things, and that's just because it's the way I want it to be. Yeah, I'll say, looking at your website, you have quite a resume going on with all the projects you're involved in and all the skills that you've acquired over the years. Yeah, I think uh, it's a retrospective thing. I don't think about it too much until I really sort of look at backwards and then just see all this stuff and go, wow, that's a lot of stuff. But uh, at the time, I never, you know, I never thought too much about it. I just was, oh, this sounds cool. Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then... Before you know it, it all becomes notches on your belt, and uh, then all of a sudden that belt is getting pretty, pretty, uh, pretty uh, full, full of notches. So it's uh, just the way it happens. Wow. Now, how did the gig with Ozzy come about? You were involved with Ozzy back in the um, in '86 with the Ultimate Sin record. How did that all come about? Um, I'd known Ozzy and I'd known Sharon for a long time through mutual friends. And um, uh, they were always, you know, pretty fond of me, and I was definitely pretty fond of them. And 
it just came to be at one time they were looking for a bass player. Uh, a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, had just auditioned for them and, and got the gig as a drummer, and that was Randy Castillo. I knew Randy from before he played with Ozzy. We were friends for a long time. So I remember saying to them, hey, you know, you should let me try out. And they said, no, 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 I don't, I don't know what they thought. They thought maybe I was not serious or whatever. Anyway, some time went past, and then I ran into Ozzy somewhere in the in a in the middle of nowhere, and uh, and I suggested it to him again, and he said, "Well, you know, if you want to, why don't you come down and 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 you know, we're still trying to find somebody. We've been through a bunch of people. We can't find the right person. Come down, and have a play." So I went, picked up my bass, came back down, had a play, and ended up playing with them for a few days, um, and then I came. They asked me to come back again. Uh, and at this time, I worked with them for about a week, a week and a half, something like that. And then they told me I had the gig. So it was a little bit of both. I mean, I suppose the getting, you know, having known them helped me get the audition. But ultimately, I was in a, in a room with with Randy and with Jake, and uh, we were just, you know, duking it out in the room, seeing what we could do and what it was sounding like, what the what the unit, the band was sounding like. And uh, I guess everybody was happy with it. So that's how that came to be. That's awesome. Now, what's an audition process like that like? Like, you go in, Avi, who at that point, 86, you know, was, was pretty well established in his career. I mean, you know, between what he did with Black Sabbath and now his solo career. So what's that process like? How do you prepare yourself for something like that? I don't know that you can. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a little bit like you get that feeling like before you go into an exam or something. It's like you've done all the work. Uh, there's nothing you can really do the night before that's going to make that much of a difference. If you've done your work, um, you're going to have that in the in your back pocket. You're going to have that 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 training, and so really, what's happening? And and all auditions are different, by the way. Um, generally speaking, they might say, "Look, here's a couple of songs. Learn these songs because we're going to play them." They might want to jam on something. They might just want to to play some standard songs just to see how how the the, the unit of the the, music, the three musicians is gelling. If it's coming together, if there's some kind of, you know, excitement, if it's boring, if it's, you know, if it's really like, you know, full of energy, um, all of these things uh, are things that come into play, um, and then you know sometimes it's nothing personal. Maybe it just doesn't work out, and you know you just don't sound too good with these other musicians, and you know you have to realize it's not the, it's not a personal thing. It's maybe it's like a, maybe it's like being an actor. You know, you go in for an acting audition and. The producer looks over at you, and you might be a great actor, but it, it, you're not what he, exactly what he had in mind. So, um, you know, the same producer will call you back again six months later because it, it's nothing personal. So, generally, that's kind of how these kind of auditions take place. That's that is awesome. That's a heck of an insight there. Mm-hmm. Now, you went from. Ozzy and, you know, playing with with other people, and you really branched your career out. Like, you became, um, a, like, a, a mixing recording engineer, and now, like, you're part of the, um, the LA chapter of the Grammy Association. How did that career progress? Because one of the things I really want to ask about is I saw that you actually trained on Pro Tools at Digidesign HQ. So how, how does that go from you being, you know, the bassist, you're now working into more of the behind-the-scenes production? How did that evolve? Okay. Um, from a very early age and from early days, I was always really interested in the idea of being able to record. 
um, very, very early, way back when, uh, you know, my dad had a, a tape, uh, a tape machine, a reel-to-reel tape machine, just a you know consumer one. And uh, I'd always have friends over, and we'd always try to record. And we found creative ways of being able to overdub on that machine. And so we would record things. When the first Porter Studio came out, this thing blew my mind. I borrowed one from someone, and uh, I was just like, wow, this is the greatest thing ever, because you can actually start to put your ideas down and make things that sound good, you know, uh, on speakers or headphones. Um, so having said that, every time I was in a, in a work situation, I always was involved to some degree on both sides of the glass. If I was playing, I was playing. If I wasn't playing, I was sitting in the control room. I was watching what was going on. I was asking questions. Uh, where I wasn't was sitting in front of a TV watching, uh, uh, watching TV or going out playing pool or whatever because I just was fascinated by the whole thing. So if I wasn't doing one thing, I was doing another. And then it was only a matter of time before I started uh, uh, you know, putting my own studio together. Um, I built a studio using uh, ADAT machines way back when, and I oh, had yeah. a 24-track studio, and I started recording stuff. And then when Pro Tools came around, I just thought, this is going to change the whole field. It's very difficult to get into production, but maybe if I'm really good with Pro Tools, then that would help me get into the production circle. So I contacted DigiDesign, and I said, hey, you know, I want to train with you. And they said, well, we don't train anybody, but we know who you are. So what we'd like you to do is uh, we'll train you on the condition that you help us um, with some of your, you know, some of your peers. You can tell them a little bit about what we do, and uh, we'll help each other. And that's what happened. 1998, I started training with them. I sort of became a bit of a consultant for them. And, uh, and um, the rest is history. Every, every musician has a Pro Tools rig these days. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Yeah. You know? Wow. Now, I'm curious, so since recording keeps progressing, you obviously have a Pro Tools rig in your house. Have you experimented with any of the things that you can do on the iOS now, like an iPhone or an iPad? On an iPad? No, I haven't. Um, you know, to me, it's the recording thing is a, is a tool. Um, they're all as good as each other. I mean, Pro, Tool, Pro Tools is an industry standard, but there's Logic, there's Nuendo, there's, there's Cubase, there's Pyramix, there's... Uh, all of these other recording technologies that basically do the same thing. Some do it better than Pro Tools, some do it not quite as well. Um, but the point is that this is a recording device. It's, it's not a writing device. If I'm going to write, uh, what I like to do is I like to write on an acoustic guitar or on a piano, and that's how I like to create. So rather than go off and try to record too much on an iPad or try to use an iPad to do something like this, I know you can do it, but... To me, I'm, I'm more of a traditional recording uh, engineer. So what's going to yeah. happen is I'm going to end up writing the song. When the song's written, then I'll take it into the studio. Then I'll start to re- arrange and record it. Uh, and that's pretty much how I work. So I haven't really tried it, but like I said, I do know people who, you know, who have all kinds of really cool bits of software. And uh, I'm a big Mac guy anyway, so I love what, everything I make. But um, it's not something I would spend too much time doing myself. Gotcha. I, I've been uh, I've been messing around with GarageBand on the iPad a little bit, but I've actually been, been demoing it for work lately, and um, I it blows me away what you can do on the iPad because you mentioned the Porta Studio, you know, and I, I had a little Fostex four track years ago, but now you have more recording power than that in a digital device. It's like it's, it's as a notebook. I know. 
Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, the, the, you know, back then the Porter Studio was amazing because there was no other device. That was the only thing yeah. you could buy. Um, Fostex came out with a... Oh, sorry. TIAC came out with a 3340, it was called. It was a reel-to-reel four-track machine. And it was quite expensive. Like, very expensive. I remember going to see one in the store one day and just kind of looking at it going, wow, you know, if I had this, I could do anything I wanted. But there was nothing like that was affordable. And then the Porter Studio came out, and that was affordable. But uh, since then, I, I, I'm sure, you know, there's probably a hundred devices that that are, are, are smaller than a, a briefcase that can record, that can do amazing things. I mean, it's really yeah, incredible. It, you know? There's um, so many options. Course, having, a port, having a Pro Tools studio or having a studio, you know, whatever it's... Pro Tools is only a piece of it. You know, there's a lot of other stuff. There's monitoring, there's mic pre's, microphones, there's the space that you use, there's all of the stuff that goes with it as well. So the, the heart of it, I mean, the recording device is, is, a, is a computer, and the mixing device is a computer. In fact, a lot of people don't even mix on Pro Tools. They just use it as a recording device. So that is really just one component. When you look at some of the things we're talking about right now with the iPad, that's almost like a yeah. self-contained thing. I mean, you've got samples in there. You've got, you can bring in instruments. You can do anything, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Now, let's, let's take a step further here. So you've got all your engineer skills, um, and you've got your latest record out, No Protection. Mm-hmm. How did how did that record come about? Like, we heard a little bit about your writing process. Can you take us more into that? And then do you do all your own engineering, or how's, how does it go about when you create your own solo record here? Uh, generally, um, what I would do is write songs, and then I would start what I would call production demos. I'd go into the studio. I'd start uh, putting down some drum parts, putting down some bass parts and some basic chordings uh, and start to work on arrangements and try, try to see how I can make something sound unique and, uh, and give, it a, give it its own vibe, give, vibe, give it like a spirit, you know. Uh, and then yeah. at some point, once I got it pretty much close, I would use that as a template and then I'd call musicians in, play, them, play it to them and then say, okay, learn this, now forget everything I've done in it and just do, make your own interpretation of this. And that's what would happen, and uh, we'd record stuff, and then that's how it works. Uh, on this particular album, I had started getting invo- into it, and um, I'd always had this desire to want to do an album where I played all the instruments on it myself. And that's what I decided to do. It's, it's just the way this record started happening. There's, you know, I came out of a, a bit of an unfortunate series of events, and it was, you know, my, my dad passed away just before I started this record. And um, so... I kind of was going through a bit of a really introspective part of my life, and it seemed that I was focusing very well on, on, on what I was trying to do with this record. And so I said, you know what, halfway through, I said, you know, this is, this, I should just continue doing this. I actually took the record over to Simon Phillips, and I said, Simon, you know, I'd love you to play drums on this. And he listened to it, and he said, I really like what you're doing. Why don't you play drums on it yourself? It'll be a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, and if you get stuck, give me a call. So um, that's it, what I ended up doing. I ended up do, uh, playing everything, um, recording everything. I, I engineered everything. It took Everything took four times as long because, <laughs> you know, if I change one part, then I have to go and change three other parts to make it fit. I can't just look, look at three other people and say, hey, let's try this. Um, yeah. And the, the hardest thing about it was to try to remain objective. I was starting to get too close to it, so it got to a point where I just couldn't be—I couldn't be objective about it anymore. 
But um, eventually it started no. coming together, and uh, then when I went into the mixing, that seemed to take much longer as well for the same reason, the objectivity. Um, and uh, when it was finished, I finally said, okay, I'm not going to master it. I'm going to hire somebody to master it because I need, a, I need some outside ears on this. And uh, my friend, uh, Brad Vance, who has a company called Red Mastering, and he's just amazing. So I sent him the mixes, and he called me up, and he said, okay, try doing this, doing that, doing that, make a few adjustments here and there. I think we're ready to master it. And that's how it works. Now, when you were running into those walls with your objectivity there, uh, did you, like, reach out to any external producers and say, hey, can you point me in the right direction, or did you just power through it? Uh, No, I didn't. I mean, I would have liked to have done. I think the thing is most people are so busy these days that they don't really have too much time to get terribly objective about stuff. I mean, you know, Simon gave me a couple of ideas, and, you know, some of my friends gave me a couple of ideas, but... I was really looking to bounce things off. I find that being a creative person, I'm not looking for people to give me a direction or tell me where I should go with something. What I'm looking for them to do is to affirm what I feel or uh, either confirm it or, 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 or uh, um, yeah, just confirm what I'm feeling. So, for example, yeah. if I'm... You know, if I'm thinking to myself, ah, you know, this little part here, I really don't know that it's picking up enough energy. I won't tell anybody. I'll play it to them, and then I'll see what they say. And if they say, oh, yeah, that, that part there is a little kind of slow, then I know I need to address it. Or if they say, oh, that part's great, uh, then I'll think, okay, then I'm wrong. So it's more of a, a sort of yes-no thing. I'm just trying to confirm what it is that I'm, that, that I'm, I'm, I'm feeling or not feeling. Wow. Now, where can fans um, or where can our listeners um, find the recording? There's your website, com. Is it going to be available on iTunes, any other places? Uh, yes. Uh, first of all, it is definitely on uh, on uh, com, and you can just go to that website. There's also a store link if people want to buy it. They can hear some little bits of snippets there. Uh, it's already up on iTunes. Uh, you just need to search for Susan. Um, you know, this album was actually signed to Steve Vai's label, to Favored Nations. So you can go to the, the Favored Nations digital page, which is digitalnations.com, and you'll also find it there, and you can actually listen through to some snippets. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's in several different places. Um, that, those would be the best places to find it. Um, well, All right. What can I tell you about it? Um, the hard co- oh the hard copies we sell uh, on uh, I sell on my uh, on my site, and uh, they're also available from uh, CD Baby. Um, but if somebody buys a hard copy on my site, uh, it's I'm going to autograph it for them. And uh, I want to tell you a little bit about the packaging as well because the packaging is something I really really like album covers and I really like notes and like to read lyrics. And so even though one would think these days it's it's Stupid expensive to do something like this. I, you know, I've made like a beautiful uh, six-panel digipack cover, cover for this, and people who get it are just thrilled because it's, it's like a, you know, it's like a real album. <laughs> it's got a whole booklet of lyrics and everything. Um, Why am I happy to hear that? That's awesome. You know, it's kind of weird. I've been doing a thing on my Facebook page, and and by the way, if people would go to the face, Facebook.com backslash 
Phil Susan. It'll take him to my page, and I would really like it if they would like that page because it's a great way to stay in touch. And occasionally I do specials over there, and I try to do some cool things. Um, but we did like a little research project over there, which was trying to find out what people want, um, what makes people download versus people buying um, a hard copy, what prevents them from downloading, what prevents them from wanting to purchase music, all these questions. And one of the questions that completely blew my mind is that uh, in, in our survey, over 90% of people want a hard copy CD, and I would never have imagined that until I did this. I thought it was the opposite, and that's not true. People want the hard copy CD. What they don't want to do is they don't want to pay a ridiculous amount of money for it, and they also don't want to just get some cheesy jewel case with a you know, black and white photograph as the album cover. Yeah. You know, they want to have something that's really that that feels expensive in their hands, you know, and that feels yeah. like there's some collectivity to it, like something that you could you can hang on to for for years and pick it up and read it one day and enjoy it. So, I'm changing my whole my whole mo on this stuff. I mean, I I it's that has confirmed my belief that people still want album covers. You know, my first album, solo album, Vibrate, was also done the same. It had a big ten page booklet in there and all this other cool stuff. And people who got that love that. Yeah. Uh, so we're trying to do the same thing, and also we're trying to find the exact price that people are happy with. But I think it's fair to st say that people are happy paying between ten and twelve bucks for a CD. For me, you know, for me, I I I gave I gave up when pe when record companies started charging seventeen and eighteen dollars an album. I just said that's just that's just that's just uh, uh, cheeky, you know. It's just not fair. Yeah. And yeah, I, no, I, I, I think that's what caused the demise of the music industry, or, or at least of the labels. That's why everybody just said, okay, bye-bye, you're getting greedy now. Because the artists never made that kind of money. They might make 14% of that. And then they have to pay off their costs and everything else. So it wasn't like the money was going to the artists. It was just going to the pockets of these record company execs. Yeah. And that was a shame. So... I would say that you know we you know we're trying to find the ideal price and the ideal way because we don't want to you know we want to give people value for money we want people to enjoy music we want them to feel happy about buying music we want them to be able to afford to buy music and uh, and uh, you know and, and not reaming people I mean it's the, the world is a very different place now you know we want we do make a bigger percentage of our records we still have a lot of manufacturing expense in them I mean it's you know. Once you've got your music recorded and everything else, I mean, you, your manufacturing can be anything from, you know, uh, two to four to five dollars a copy. I mean, it can be quite expensive yeah. depending on how much stuff you put into it, uh, how much you, how much of a product you make. Um, but within that, we we still want to make sure that people can enjoy and can buy um, music comfortably without having to think too much before they hit a buy button. You know, so that's the exercise. <laughs> No, I think that's fantastic. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're putting so much into that because, I mean, one of the reasons I'll buy digital music is because if you get a CD, there's very little to enjoy anymore. You know, I mean, when I was a kid coming up, one of my favorite albums I ever bought was Live After Death, Iron Maiden. And that was a huge double album with these great pictures and these pullouts. And I love to hear that that's what you're doing with your CD. I mean, that's wonderful. I just think that the download leaves a lot to be desired. I mean, when I download an album... All of a sudden, I'm listening to the record. I'm going, who played that guitar part? Who played bass on that track? 
Who produced yes. it? Who engineered it? Yeah. You know, what instruments were that? I love an album which I can pick up and I can see a photograph of where it was recorded, too, or just see photographs of, of the people who worked on that stuff, uh, and, as well as intriguing album covers. I mean, you know, Physical Graffiti was just like such a great album cover, and we had so many of those that, that, that people just don't experience anymore. And it's yeah. part of the experience. It's part of the record. You know, you've got to have that, I think. Um, so the downloads are convenient, but, you know, ultimately, um, you know, when we when we were younger, I mean, we walked around with albums under our arms. It was kind of like a badge. I mean, it told people what you were into. I met people. I met people I'm friends with to this day because we were carrying the same albums around. Today, awesome. I mean, what do you carry around? A hard drive? You know, it's <laughs> pretty much. It's not really the same thing. And 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 I just think that little bit of that kind of rock and roll identity has been taken out of the equation. And really young kids are just starting to discover that again now. They're going to stores like Amoeba or whatever, and they're looking and they're buying vinyl now. Because they, this is like a new thing. Wow, you know, this, yeah. is a whole, this is a whole thing that's been taken away. And so I think that will always come back. I think it's part of the experience, and it's really important. Um, downloading illegally, you know, I'm not a big fan. But there again, I'm not going to lose sleep over it. You know, that, that horse is bolted. People are going to do what they're going to do. Um, yeah. If I could give you a little bit of an anecdote about that. You know, when I was a oh, kid, we used to um, um, get albums that we liked, and we'd make cassette copies. All right? Same kind of thing, right? I'd put the cassette copy yeah. in my car, and I'd listen to it until it made me, you know, until I'd, 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 I'd heard it. But those albums that I liked, that I listened to on cassette, whether they were Deep Purple albums or whether they were whatever... Eventually, the minute I started earning money, I went out and bought those records, and then I bought them on album and then I, on vinyl, then I went and bought them on cassette, then I bought them on CD, then I bought them on CD again when somebody stole the CD. So some of those records I've bought five, six, seven times in my life. So I'm not terribly worried about people, you know, listening to stuff to get a flavor for something. And if it's an album they like, eventually they'll buy it. I agree with that. I've done the same thing you've done. Hmm. Yeah, you and, know. you know, in a way it's like like listening to the radio right you know you listen to the radio and then you go man i really love that band you know and i eventually you want to go buy that album and you know when you're younger maybe you can only afford one or two albums a, a week if you're lucky and then one day when you're working and you've got you know you've got money you don't have a problem you'll go out and buy those records because you liked you liked them growing up you liked the music that you heard and um, so i think it's you know, when it's done when it's done well, eventually all ro roads lead back home, you know? And I have to have the faith in that. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. I completely agree. Well, so I guess we'll do one last question here, and then we'll wrap up our interview. I really do sure. appreciate your time with us today. Uh, um, so let's talk about the Grammy Association. How did you come to be involved with that? Uh, I came to be involved with it because I... Actually, after my friend Randy Castillo passed away, one of the organizations that had been really helpful to him was Music Cares. Music Cares is part of the Grammys. The Grammys just doesn't just do the show. That's what everybody knows about. But there are four divisions to the Grammys, and one of them is Music Cares. And we raise money for people who need money. If they can't pay their bills, if they have medical bills and they can't pay them, if they're a musician or if they're a roadie, or if they're a tech, or if they're somehow involved in the music industry, they can turn around to, to Music Cares, and they can get money. And there's no, it's very easy. There's no huge forms and all of that crap. They just help. 
So I loved this organization, and I wanted to do something for it. I wanted to give something back. And uh, um, a, a friend of mine said to me, you know, you're a voting member. You've been a member of the Grammys for a long time. Why don't you apply as a governor, a board governor? And I said, well, you know, that's kind of crazy because I'll never make the election. And So I, long story short, I was on the ballot, and I got elected as a board governor, and I served two terms, which was four years. And at the end, my board said to me, Phil, you should run as vice president because you've been very active in, in two or three things, in advocacy issues and, and just generally. And we think that you have the kind of qualities that would be good as an officer, uh, in an officer position. So I ran as vice president. I had to make a, a, a nerve-wracking speech to all of these super talented, big, huge name people. And uh, guess what? I got I got elected. So I'm running the term of, as vice president. I'm hoping to run a couple of terms, and then I don't know what's going to happen after that. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and it, yeah. No, so that's you know that's what I'm doing. On a, on a related note, I wanted to tell you a little bit about the David Lynch Foundation as well. Do you know much about that? Oh, yeah. No, I don't know anything about it. Oh, well, David Lynch, who's a movie director, director, uh, he has a foundation. And what they do is a similar kind of thing. They raise money, and they use the money to teach uh, meditation to troubled teens, kids, people in trouble, soldiers coming back from war who have post-traumatic stress disorder, anyone who's at risk of turning to drugs and alcohol to solve their problems. And it's an alternative. And this program has been supported by some really big people, Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, Peter Gabriel, um, um, Russell Simmons, um, just tons of Moby, tons of big, big names. And so one of the things they wanted to do is they wanted to release a compilation album of unreleased masters from some of these artists. And they gave me a slot. They said, hey, you know, we'd love to have an unreleased master from you. And I didn't know what to give them. So after thinking for a while, I thought, I'm going to give them a song that they know. So I re-recorded Shot in the Dark. I did my own version of it. Excellent. That, I, that we had that huge hit with Ozzy with. So I re-recorded it. I did it right about the same time I finished my album. So I played everything on it myself. And it came out amazing. So they've just released that. They're starting some radio promo for this at the end of August. But it's already getting airplay in Australia, which is really cool. But if people want to go to the David Lynch Foundation website, or actually go to my page and click on it, there's a couple of click-throughs to the David Lynch Foundation page, and you can just hear the whole song without having to buy it or pay for it or anything. You can just click play, and it'll blow you away. It's exactly how I think it should have been recorded the first time around. So they should check that out. And if they want to buy that compilation, that money is going to go to a fantastic cause. But they can listen to it without oh. having to buy it. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Mm. Well, Phil, I want to thank you for your time today. I really, really appreciate you taking time out of, our, out of your schedule to talk with us. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure, Aaron. Thanks for thanks very much for all your time as well. And I, I really uh, appreciate the the chance to connect with some of your listeners and uh, and uh, the people who are fans of your show. All right, thank you, Phil. I really appreciate it. Suffocating in the heat of the flame. Too many people trying to feed me a diet of change. And I'm hungry on this 
Oh 
Soul from Phil Suzanne. Again, a great big thank you to Phil and also Johnny Hetherington uh, from Art of Dying for coming on the show this week. Just as a reminder, Art of Dying on the 13th of August and also the 16th of September. Uh, that is the 42nd Street and the First Niagara Pavilion, respectively. You can find more information on those shows and all shows at ironcityrocks.com. I invite you to come take a look if you haven't been on our website recently. We made some changes to the website, hopefully a lot more interactive. We started posting a few video interviews. We've got a couple uh, written interviews as well with some different bands, so trying to make the site a lot more engaging. Also, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, at all at forward slash ironcityrocks. And uh, we invite any and all feedback, criticism, complaints, or praise to ironcityrocks at gmail.com. Also, if you're a listener, uh, we would deeply, deeply appreciate you subscribing on iTunes. Uh, that really helps us uh, with statistics and whatnot. So, uh, again, just go to iTunes, hit subscribe, but it will cost you nothing. And in return, we'll give you 117 free MP3 files. I'm sure you can figure out what those are. Hope you enjoyed the show. We'll catch you next time. Oops, wait, before we go, wanted to give you a little taste of what you can expect coming up on ironcityrocks.com sometime in the very, very near future. Hey, this is Chris Roderick of Megadeth, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. <laughs> 